Hello, welcome to the Beef Cattle Health and Nutrition Podcast, Episode 10. I'm your host, Dr. John Campbell. This week, I'm pleased to have Jennifer Hayden as a guest. She's a Livestock Extension Specialist with the Ministry of Agriculture here in Saskatchewan, and she helps many producers with their day-to-day nutritional problems. She's got a wealth of practical experience, and today Jennifer's going to help us work through how to interpret a feed analysis report. Let's get started. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's great to have you here. Thanks, John. I'm glad to be here. Good. Um, well, maybe we could start by having you tell the audience a bit about your background and what you do, where you're located. Sure. Sounds good. I So I grew up on a mixed farm in East Central Alberta along the Battle River. I received both a bachelor's in agriculture and a master's in beef cattle genomics from the University of Alberta. And I worked for five years in Alberta as a forage and livestock agronomist with an applied research association before moving to Saskatchewan. And I've been with the Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture as a livestock and feed extension specialist since 2009. So we work directly with farmers and ranchers. So whether that's phone calls or farm calls. We also host extension events as well, do some webinars for them. And I'm located in the northwest portion of the province. That's great. The livestock extension specialists are a great resource for the producers in our province. And we're really lucky to have you folks as uh, part of the team delivering knowledge and all sorts of expertise to our producers. Today, our topic is interpreting a feed analysis report. And let's start with probably the easiest part to understand, moisture or dry matter. That's usually near the top of the report. Why is that such an important part of the analysis? So John, that's basically just telling us how much water or moisture is in the feed. And the more moisture that we have in a feed or a ration, the fuller those animals get on that water versus actual nutrients. So we need to ensure that they have a nutrient dense diet that's gonna meet their requirements. So if possible, we don't wanna see rations that exceed 50% moisture, especially for young calves and cows in late pregnancy and lactation. And that moisture content of the feed can be extremely variable. And you'll see that when you look at a feed test. So with baled forages, things like hay, green feed, straw, we're looking for moisture values that are less than 15%. When moisture is higher than 15%, we have a greater potential for heating and also then for mold formation. Silage is a bit different, obviously. Um, We look at moisture levels probably in that 45 to 70% range, just depending on how that silage was put up or how it's being stored. So is it a baled or wrapped silage? Um, Because those are gonna have lower moisture content than what silage in a pit or a silo has. That moisture or dry matter level, that has a important implication on on intake, as you stated, And, and so, Part of using that feed analysis is to calculate the dry matter intake for for the particular class of animal you're feeding. So what rule of thumb would you use to target dry matter intake for cows? So for cows, we're usually we're targeting around two to two and a half percent of their body weight in dry matter. So if we have a 1400 pound cow, she's going to need about 35 pounds of dry matter 
per day. So although we look at rations and we look at feeds in a dry matter basis, we still talk about feeding cows on an as-fed basis that takes that moisture content into account. So if those cows are consuming hay that's around 15% moisture, so she's 35 pounds dry matter, that means she's probably needs about 40 pounds on an as-fed basis. Now, having said that, that 2.5% target, um, there's a number of factors at play. So we have to also consider weather. We consider the stage of production that that animal is at, um, water quality and consumption, and temperature, just to name a few of those things. And if we're, the other thing too that we want to take um, note of is that if we're using a, a large percentage of poor quality feeds, dry matter intake is less. If water quality is marginal, dry matter intake is less. Um, the more, you know, the, the further into pregnancy that that cow gets, the less space there is in the rumen, her dry matter intake is also less at that point. On the flip side, um, if feed quality is really good and water quality is good um, and that there's lots of space there in the rumen, then dry matter intake tends to be higher. How, how does temperature affect dry matter intake? So they, cows need to, like, you got to eat to stay warm, right? And so typically um, their dry matter intake is going to increase when it's cold out because they need to consume more feed to meet their energy requirements. So I've got a feed analysis report in front of me here for some grass hay, and it's got two estimates for each category as I go down uh, and look at energy and protein and all those sort of things. And it gives me both as fed or as received and dry matter. So which one do we use to interpret and balance our rations? Yeah, and that's a great question because sometimes it's confusing when we've got both of those columns. So as received is just how did that sample arrive at the lab? The dry matter is, you know, they've removed the moisture, they've dried that sample down and we're just looking at the nutrients. So the only accurate way to compare the nutrient content of one feed to another is to make that comparison on a 100% dry matter basis. So we're always looking at that dry matter column. We take that moisture away and then we can compare the nutrients in two or more feeds side by side. And cattle nutrient requirements are based on dry matter. So we always balance rations based on, on those dry matter values. And then we can always convert those numbers back to an as fed or as received in order to determine how much we're going to feed out per day or to kind of keep track of our feed inventory requirements. So let's move down the feed report and let's start with energy. It's such an important part of the diet of beef cows, especially in our cold Canadian winters, and it can be measured in several ways. So TDN or total digestible nutrients might be the most common or the oldest way, but what are the others that you might see out there? Yeah, you're absolutely right. TDN is probably the most most common one, probably best understood, um, but there are a number of other energy values that are often noted on the report. Often you'll see net energy values, and in most cases these are going to be broken down further into net energy for maintenance, net energy for gain or net energy for lactation. And that's pretty self-explanatory. So it's it's telling you how much energy is available there just, just to maintain that cow 
um, as she is. How much energy is available there, whether we're putting, you know, that gain. So are we, is there energy available there um, for calves that we're trying to put weight on? Um, or does that cow need to put some extra weight on? And then that net energy for lactation, that's, that's the energy that's available for that cow once she's got a calf at side. So just a little bit different way to look at it. And rations can be formulated using any of those energy values, just depending on what your feeding management is like and the specialist or the nutritionist that you're working with. So different people like to use different parameters to balance those rations. And as long as you're you're using one and kind of sticking with it, then that's, you know, that's that's how most people kind of get through that. So TDNs measured in a percentage estimate of the dry matter, whereas uh, metabolizable energy or net energy, the energy, other energy systems are, re- uh, are in a different unit. What's, what's the difference between those? Yeah. So the, the net energy system will use, I think they use mega calories is what they're using. Um, and it's just a different, it's just a different value. And all of those, so the one thing about energy is that all of those are calculations based on something else. So we don't do a, we're not doing a physical or a chemical analysis on those, on those parameters. They're all based on other components um, in that feed. So it's just a matter of how they've, how they've broken it down, um, and then how they've how they've calculated it. So, and I think that's maybe why TDN is easy to work with because it is in a percentage, as opposed to using those mega calories that those digestible energy or the net energy system uses. Let's move on to the next category on my feed report. So, crude proteins listed near the top. Why the word crude? What's it actually measuring? So this is the total amount of protein in the feed. So just like the name suggests, it's very, it's crude. It doesn't tell us anything about um, the protein that's, it doesn't take into account any of the protein that's unavailable or anything like that. It's simply telling us what total value of protein is is present. So the both true protein and non-protein nitrogen, um, but nothing about the structure of that protein. So non-protein nitrogen could be sources like urea or something like that, that, that aren't right. true proteins in a way, but the cattle can still utilize it. Yep. They can still utilize them. We have to be careful the amount that we're using. So it's important when we look at that crude protein number to kind of know where that, where those values are coming from for sure. So depending on the analysis, there might be some other protein components, just like the energy side of things listed in the feed analysis. What might a producer see listed there? Yeah, there can be a variety of different things there. So we might have, you might see degradable intake protein, sometimes also called rumen degradable protein. And just like it sounds, this is the protein that's broken down in the rumen. It's used by the rumen microbes for their own growth. They synthesize bacterial crude protein, and it also helps in the digestion of fiber. And then we might also have undegradable intake protein or sometimes called bypass protein. So this is protein that that bypasses the rumen and is directly uh, digested in the small intestine. So often your small amino acids will be, they'll bypass the rumen, they'll go to the, the small intestine and be absorbed there. We might also have, um, there's a couple of other parameters. So ADF 
CP and NDFCP. So these numbers are reflective of the crude protein that's bound to fiber, and these are unavailable to the animal. So, which brings us to probably the another parameter that you might see listed under those protein values, and that's either available or adjusted crude protein. So I talked a little bit earlier about moisture content and the fact that if we have too much moisture, we can have heating in those bales. And through that heating process, nitrogen ends up getting bound to fiber. And then it's unavailable to the animal. So it looks like we have protein there, but we really, we don't. It's not going to, the animal's not going to be able to use it. So feeds that are overheated are often discolored. They often have a distinct sweet smell and they're very palatable, which is, it's great for you know, in some ways, um, but in other ways, we have to also realize that even though that feed is palatable, that protein isn't necessarily available and that quality has been compromised. So that adjusted crude protein or that available crude protein takes that heating into, into account. Um, and then that number is reflective of that. So if there's no heating, then your available or your adjusted crude protein is, is going to be very similar to your crude protein value. But if that sample has heated, you'll see a difference in those two numbers. And then when you go to input that information into a ration or into a ration balancing software, you wanna use that adjusted or available crude protein level because that's what's actually available to the cow. Uh, so crude protein or adjusted crude protein is just discussed and energy, like TDN, they're pretty important values. They're probably two of the most important limiting factors we have in our feed. So do you have some rules of thumb for cow requirements for those two components of the ration? Yeah, we sure do. So at mid-pregnancy, if we're talking crude protein, we're going to target about 7 to 8% crude protein for those cows at mid-pregnancy. And we're going to target 53 to 55% for TDN. As we move into late pregnancy, um, 9 to 10% for crude protein, <clears throat> and we're looking at probably 58 to 60% for TDN. Once that cow actually has a calf at side, her requirements increase quite substantially. So around 11 to 12% for crude protein and 63 to 65% for TDN. And it's important too to realize that those rules of thumb are they're pretty basic to maintaining that pregnancy or maintaining lactation. They don't take severe weather into account. They also don't take into account if that cow is in a poor body condition and she needs to put on some weight. Um, there's that's not really factored in there. Right, but they do help at least look at a forage and say, hey, is this going to be adequate for, for that class for of sure. cow? Yeah, for sure. And that's, I mean, that's probably one of the first things that you're going to look at when you look at that feed test is where's that crude protein? Where's that TDN? Is this a feed that I'm going to, you know, is best suited for mid-pregnancy or is this really good feed that I'm going to save once that cow's got a calf inside? So on my report, there's two measurements that we always see associated with fiber. We see acid detergent fiber, or ADF, and neutral detergent fiber, NDF. Can you explain what those mean? 
So both of those, so both ADF and NDF, they refer to sort of the structural components of the plant. So that those parts that give plants their rigidity, keep them upright. So we're thinking stems, right? So as plants mature, that fiber increases, we have more stem, it's tougher, those leaves begin to drop off and those fibers are hard to digest. So ADF refers to that acid detergent fiber and it's related to digestible energy. So as ADF increases, digestible energy decreases. So feeds that are low in ADF are more desirable because those feeds are also going to have higher energy levels. So we're gonna be able to use them, you know, later pregnancy and, and into lactation. The NDF, refers to neutral detergent fiber. So this is the fiber that physically limits intake. So as NDF increases, our dry matter intake is going to decrease. And NDF is probably one of the most valuable analyses that's going to be completed, but it's often not offered on a standard feed test. So when I talk to producers about testing feed, it's the one, you know, it's one of those things that I always urge them to make sure that that they're looking for, that they've selected a test that includes NDF because it tells us so much about, about the feed. It, it tells us about what the what harvest was like, where was that plant in terms of maturity when it was when it was harvested. And it just it it paints a really important picture for that feed test. Right. In the last couple of winters, uh, we've had some poor crops and poor forages. We've had to feed a lot of forages pretty high in NDF. There's a risk of impactions along with that. Is, do you have a rule of thumb for sort of maximum NDF value in terms of percentage of body weight or something like that? Yeah. So when we look, you know, percentage of body weight, we limit NDF to about 1.2% of body weight. So often that's, you know, a 1400 pound cow, you're probably around, you know, sort of that, that's 17 pounds somewhere in there. So when we look at a feed test, if the dry matter value of NDF is 60% or greater, we know that intake is going to be negatively affected and we might not be able to physically feed as much of that forage as the cow needs to meet her protein and energy requirements. So what would straw normally be in NDF approximately? I'm sure there's lots of variation, but yeah, lots, lots of variation, but usually around 70%, sometimes even higher. So that kind of gives you a perspective when I said that, you know, at 60%, we know that that intake is going to be affected. So straw at 70%, definitely, we're going to have, um, we're going to be limited in how much we use. So what does that mean in terms of the amount of straw that we could include in a ration? Because some producers do include significant amounts of straw? For sure. And the last, I mean, the last couple of years, we've seen lots of straw grain rations where you've got just about 50% of your ration is probably straw and the other 50% is grain or, you know, those, those numbers vary a little bit, but generally we want to limit that straw to about 1.25% of body weight, just depending on the other feedstuffs in the ration. And we have to keep that NDF to a maximum of, of 1.2% of her body weight as well. So that 1,400 pound cow, that, that's probably around that 17 pounds of straw 
on a dry matter basis or 20 pounds on an as-fed basis, assuming that that moisture value is somewhere in that 12 to 15 percent. Right. And if you were feeding other forages like green feed or something like that, that was high in NDF as well or higher, you might have to limit that even more. Yeah, exactly. So you really have to look at all the parts of the of that ration to determine whether or not, you know, can I actually use 17 pounds or am I going to be limited by the other feeds that I'm feeding? So most feed reports will also have some macro minerals listed under all these protein and energy and fiber components. Let's start with calcium and phosphorus. They're pretty important ones. And in that case, we have to worry about not just getting the right amounts, but we also have to worry about the ratio between the two. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Right. So for me, when I look at a feed test, I'll be the first to admit it's not so much about the amount of calcium and phosphorus that are there. Um, and mostly because I know that in order to meet trace mineral requirements, we're going to need a, a mineral supplement in the ration. So not that those values are not important, but we know that supplementation is going to have to occur. So when I look at those values, what I'm more concerned about is the ratio between the two. So ideally, the calcium to phosphorus ratio should be two or higher. So we want twice as much calcium as phosphorus in the overall ration. And that's just because of the way that those um, two minerals are absorbed in the rumen and and in the in the bloodstream as well. So you know, in order for those, in order for that calcium to be absorbed properly in the rumen, we have to have two of them bound to a phosphorus and the whole unit moves together. So if we, if we're lower than that two to one ratio, we have issues getting that calcium into the, into the rumen. So when we look at, um, something like a green feed or a cereal silage or corn silage, those forages tend to have really high phosphorus as compared to calcium. So that tells me that the mineral supplement that we're going to use is probably going to need to be a two to one or a three to one. So that just means that the supplement has twice as much or three times as much calcium as it does phosphorus. And sometimes we even still have to add some limestone. So some feed grade calcium to those, those types of rations. If we're feeding a grass hay, usually our calcium and phosphorus are very similar. So we we're looking at, you know, a two to one mineral so that we've got we've got twice as much calcium there. And if we're feeding a legume based ration, so if we're using something like alfalfa or an alfalfa grass mix, uh, clover, sicer milk vetch, or we've got pea hay or silage in the ration, then that ratio that we see on the feed test, we're probably, it's probably already going to be at a two to one, sometimes even a little bit higher. So then we know that when we go to add our supplement in, we're probably looking at a one to one mineral supplement. So potassium and magnesium are often listed too. I know the tetany ratio is sometimes something that you look at. Can you explain to me what that is and why it's important? Yeah, for sure. So high dietary potassium, low calcium, and low magnesium can all contribute to that um, tetany ratio. And 
if it's increased, we're going to predispose those animals to tetany. So high potassium decreases absorption of magnesium. We end up with a deficiency of, of blood magnesium, and eventually that leads to those downer cows. So sometimes these cows will stagger, or they might appear stiff. They tend to be a little bit nervous or excitable before they actually go down. Um, and it has to do with that, that high potassium. And we want, so the, the ratio of potassium to the sum of calcium and magnesium to be less than 2.2. So we could look at that feed test. We could see where our potassium level is at. We look at the combination of our calcium and magnesium, and we just wanna make sure that that, that ratio then is, is less than 2.2. And we're, you know, we're particularly concerned when those potassium levels in the forage are you know, greater than two or 2.5%. And sometimes alfalfa can be really high in potassium. We also see a lot of the polycrop mixtures that are high in potassium. Um, green feed cannot have high potassium, but also tends to have low levels of calcium and magnesium. So it's kind of special that way. And we, in order to kind of prevent that or just be aware, then like we talked about earlier, we want to make sure that calcium to phosphorus ratio is at least two to one. And often when we're using, you know, these types of feeds where high potassium is an issue, there's also a need to add, you know, something like magnesium oxide to the ration. Right. That's sort of the way to mitigate that. I, I would just add that that yeah. tetany issue or it's sometimes more like a milk fever type issue we see it in cows in late pregnancy, usually uh, different than dairy cows, where we often see it after birth. In this case, it's often late pregnancy before uh, before they give birth, and it's usually high producing, high lactation type cows as well too that we see it in. Yeah, and I think too often you'll have it's sort of that you know, the, the ones that are five or six years old are maybe a little bit more predisposed. They don't mobilize calcium and magnesium from the bone as well as, as younger animals do. So that's kind of the, the age group to watch. Right. Good point. Are there any other things we should consider when evaluating our feed analysis report that we haven't covered? So there's, there's maybe a few things. So one of them would be sodium. Um, and the biggest thing to note with sodium is that if that sodium, you know, on a dry matter basis is 0.1% or higher in that forage, what happens is you get decreased consumption of free choice salt. So if you've got salt out, you know, cows are not as likely to consume that, that salt and that where we see that is typically, you know, with those green feed type crops or silage crops, those cereals, they do tend to be higher in, in sodium. So that's one thing that, that we might note on a feed test that we haven't talked about yet. One of the other things that I want to bring up is that's not often included on a feed test, unless you specifically ask for it, is sulfur, which is important if you're feeding canola forage or a canola byproduct. Um, DDGs tend to be high in sulfur. A lot of the polycrop mixtures, if they contain turnips or radishes or the other brassica species, will also have high levels of sulfur. Or if you have poor quality water with high sulfate levels, then it's important to have an idea 
of where that sulfur level is sitting, you know, on that on that feed as well. And we want to make sure that we're sort of, you know, 0.4% or less, I think is our, our target for sulfur. So we just want to be aware of some of those things. And the other thing too, with a feed analysis is that it's a great tool. It can bring awareness to potential issues. It provides a starting point for building rations. It helps us in terms of our feed inventories and knowing where we want to use those feeds in the production cycle, but we still have to monitor cow performance. Um, a feed test is great, but the cows are going to tell you a story as well. Right. So that would be things like body condition scoring and and uh, just monitoring intakes of things like mineral and feed, et cetera. Yep, for sure. I, I heard a good comment on another podcast uh, that I listened to uh, from Kansas state and, uh, cattle chat, I think it's called. And, uh, they talked about how body condition score is important to look at, but, but it's kind of a lagging indicator that it takes a while for us to notice changes in body condition score. And by the time we notice it, you know, we're down the road a little ways. And I thought that was an interesting point. Yeah, for sure. And the other, like the thing that I've heard about body condition too, is that sometimes when, you know, when you're looking at animals every day, we don't notice those changes as much. So if you've got a neighbor or your significant other, if they are not outside with you as much as you are with those cows, you know, having that other person, that other set of eyes that maybe stops in once a week or once every couple of weeks that can look at those animals, they will see those changes before you will see them. Very true. That's a good point. Well, so this is complicated at times, but uh, you've given us some great sort of basic rules of thumb to start with, at least that help us give us some advice on on uh, looking at these feed reports. Where can producers go for help? So if you're in Saskatchewan, the Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture has nine livestock and feed extension specialists across the province. We're happy to help with interpreting feed analysis and also assisting with rations. There's feed companies that have nutritionists on staff that are also very knowledgeable. And then there's also private companies like Beef Smart and private consultants as well that, you know, there's there's people out there that, that are more than willing to, to kind of help and give advice. Yes, and I'm sure there's uh, veterinarians out there that have training in nutrition as well that can probably help you. And some veterinarian clinics are starting to hire nutritionists as well. So uh, there's lots of different options out there. And it may vary by province whether you have uh, the livestock extension type people like we do, but uh, certainly uh, there's probably that in some of the other provinces as well. Thank you so much uh, for doing this today, Jennifer. I really appreciate that. Jennifer's always uh, great help to me in my uh, teaching. I run a nutrition elective and she steps up to the plate every year for me. So thanks, Jennifer. I appreciate your help and your advice today. Thanks, John. I had a, had a good time. It was fun. That's our show for this week. I want to thank each of you for listening to the podcast and thanks again to my guest, Jennifer Hayden. Thank you as well to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions or comments or would like to suggest topics that you'd like to see covered in future episodes, please email us at bchnpodcast at gmail.com. Take care till next time.